Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Urban Planning is Not Boring. Today, we have very exciting guests from the Urban Land Institute. And specifically, we're going to be talking about a pretty recently released report exploring how an overhaul of zoning codes can play a role in solving America's housing crisis and reducing carbon emissions, among other of the top challenges that are facing cities. This report is titled Reshaping the City, Zoning for a More Equitable, Resilient, and Sustainable Future, and we will be sure to link that report in the episode description for anyone who's interested in reading further. So today we have two guests joining us from the Urban Land Institute, both of whom have contributed to this report. We have Lee Plass, who is a senior manager at ULI in the Urban Resilience Program, and Ben Foreman, a senior associate at ULI's Centers and Initiatives. So if, Lee, you don't mind introducing yourself very briefly and kind of giving us a background on who you are and your role at Urban Land Institute, and then, Ben, you can go ahead as well after Lee. Sure. Thank you, Samantha. Um, hi. So my name is Leon Plass. I just go by Lee. I, as, as you mentioned, I am a senior manager with the Urban Resilience Program. Um, as part of my role with the Urban Resilience Program, I uh, I help with uh, organizing programming. I serve as a lead author on some of our forthcoming reports around the subject of resilience and um, specifically like resilience in the intersection with the real estate industry. Um, in addition to, uh, you know, helping out with some of the technical assistance activities that uh, we're a part of as an organization. In addition to that, I also um, teach GIS at Georgetown, and I uh, serve on the American Planning Association's Technology Division Board as the um, as the vice chair. So that uh, that's a summary of my roles. Hey, folks, this is Ben Foreman. I'm a senior associate at ULI. I mainly work on the green uh, for building performance team. And so within this center, we have a little over 120 real estate organizations that are dedicated to decarbonization and building value. Um, outside of that, I'm also on my town's planning board. I study urban planning. So this is near and dear to my heart. So I'm happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much for those brief introductions. It's really great to have you both. And I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Um, so I think to start off, it'd be great to have a little bit of context. We um, have a lot of listeners who are students or who are kind of interested in exploring urban planning um, and like related topics, but don't necessarily have um, an educational background in it yet. And so it'd be great if we could talk a little bit about what zoning reform kind of means, um, if you have like a brief definition and or a few examples of what that could look like. Yeah, sure. So um, just in a nutshell, uh, you can think of zoning reform as just bringing a locality zoning codes um, up to speed with the uh, the community's uh, most current priorities. And it's really important to note, I think that right now, a lot of zoning policies, they don't allow or incentivize the types of projects that um, developers, because remember, we're coming at things from um, the ULI's uh, point of view, uh, real estate focus. A lot of projects developers want to build and the market 
demands it, but the code doesn't necessarily support it. So um, this is sort of the overarching objective here is to um, bring this uh, older traditional zoning into uh, you know the current age um, and uh, also further some of the some of these emerging goals right outside of just like prevention of public nuisance now we want to make our communities more healthy sustainable and equitable in addition to resilient against climate impacts and um, you know mitigating those uh, emissions um, in the long run and in the short run awesome thank you so much for that and yeah, that's something that we talked uh, a lot about in our in my, uh, our master's program about, you know, kind of this traditional like Euclidean zoning structure versus um, zoning that allows for more mixed use development and is more inclusionary of different uses. So definitely something that is top of mind and super important to to be talking about. Um, and I guess if you could kind of distill some of the barriers that exist currently for cities who, who are attempting to implement zoning changes, that would be really great. Yeah, oh, so um, one of the big ones is obviously the whole, um, you know, the folks who might be opposed to certain types of development, um, just maybe not necessarily on principle, but for different reasons, maybe based on personal experience, um, mistrust of government, or there are just so many different reasons why um, somebody might uh, fall under the classification of, um, which is subjective, of course, but the classification of NIMBY, um, so, uh, which is not in my backyard. So just um, thinking about uh, approaches to sort of overcoming that is, um, it's, it's a bit difficult, right? Because there are so many different um, conditions in different communities that need to be taken under consideration. You know, what's the reason for this opposition? That's something that can also be highly variable. But um, the community engagement process, I think, is a really great opportunity for planners to find a workable middle ground. And it's also a great opportunity to share really critical information, right? So if you have uh, community members who are vehemently opposed to a multifamily slash affordable housing development, um, you know, maybe maybe it would be um, of help to provide some of the uh, information about these co-benefits to this type of development. For instance, let's say this was a mixed-use development, so provision of much-needed community amenities, making the community more walkable. There's also some co-benefits where, um, and in a lot of cases, this is true, but the, um, there is a possibility that the property values may increase as a result of these, uh, these this new development. So. Um, getting that information across and also listening and finding ways to sort of integrate it into um, into uh, any sort of policy updates is, um, I think, a really great way to sort of bridge that gap because um, it is a it is a pretty pretty often it's a communication gap and um, you know in order to in order to uh, find a solution that works for everyone that conversation needs to get started right um, and then. Uh, I think there's also uh, a bit of uh, uh, of a distinction that should be made, right, between you know the opposition that you see uh, like in the moment with particular development proposals, and then you know during the process of formulating and um, 
formulating like new new policies or revision or updates to zoning codes. So sometimes an application might include this request to update zoning, and in those cases, you'll hear you know calls about you know spot zoning and and what have you. This is a really common occurrence, but talking more specifically about just like preemptive zoning reform to accommodate community needs, um, making sure that the community members are actively involved in that process again up front um, and creating opportunities to do so, um, you know, providing uh, engagement opportunities and through a variety of platforms, just a lot of the sort of outreach processes that are talked a lot uh, talked about in um, uh, you know, the reading material that you have to go through in order to attain your AICP. Um, those are all really great ways to just get that community engagement going early in the process so that those calls uh, later in the process about spot zoning never really come to pass because the consensus has already been built and done in a, in a way where, you know, there aren't, there aren't really any big surprises um, once uh, once the development applications start rolling in. And, you know, ideally there's no call, there's no request for rezoning because it already is uh you know optimized for community need yeah absolutely thank you for that that was um that was really in depth and it's interesting um you started to allude to you know this phenomenon of um, nimbyism or not in my backyard and i think you started to allude to this but it would be great um i think a lot of planners struggled to kind of engage with NIMBY concerns when, you know, proposing projects um, or zoning reform. So some kind of strategies that planners can use to engage with NIMBY concerns, particularly when discussing increased housing stock and more inclusionary zoning policies. Yeah, so in that particular context, um, I think a lot of what I what I shared before does still apply. But I think it's also our responsibility as planners to like, you know, get uh, get those co-benefits of, you know, inclusionary zoning and affordable, attainable housing um, just on the books um, and also like in front of community members. So, um, you know, going back to some of the examples I shared before, the community facing amenities, the resources, the increased walkability, that's all great. Um, and obviously, if it can be supplemented with some sorts of like concrete examples, you know, that that's also, that's also pretty nice. So one of the ones that we highlighted in the report was um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, which increased the allowable residential density by right and thereby eliminating single family zoning. Um, so that made it possible for, you know, additional housing units to be um, to be installed and specifically uh, affordable housing units to be uh, to be available uh, to community members. So it looks like um, there were 9,000 units that were permitted um, between January 2020, March 2022, um, you know, thanks to uh, that, that uh, zoning reform policy. And um, I think they're still reaping the benefits of this, this improvement even now. And then we have a couple others, um, and this is all by right. So um, we're talking about uh, policies that are just, you know, the base policy that are being, um, that, is, uh, that is being changed. It's not like there's like some special overlay zone or, you know, some kind of like planned unit development situation. Um, where, you know, there's like a back and forth, like where people are uh, communicating, uh, the developers is collaborating with the locality to try to find the right mix of uses. Um, 
So that was that's one that's one of the examples that's highlighted in the report body. And we've got we've got a couple more. So we've got Denver, Colorado, um, which it, which did citywide, um, which was a citywide uh, uh, policy that you know lowered the parking ratios. And I think at the same time, you know, when you parking parking spots are expensive, especially in areas that are at build out. And so um, you know by by lowering that requirement, you're able to fit more units on a lot. And um, in doing so, you're also in particularly helpful in places that have good transit and, you know, uh, 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 pretty decent uh, walkability overall. But um, so that policy was passed um, in 2021, um, and it made it a bit easier uh, to provide housing units um, in that locality. And we have a couple others in the report. I, I, I'm not inclined to cover them systematically, but I do want to call out just one more because it's got a nice resilience tie-in. Um, so we also have a policy that was adopted in um, in Boston, Massachusetts. So this was uh, net zero. This was like sort of focused on like reducing carbon emissions, but at the same time, um, so, uh, there are like a number of like existing programs within um, within Boston that are just uh, trying to cut down on the um, on, dis on displacement due to gentrification. And part of that effort is to um, increase the uh, the the you know number of affordable housing units in Boston's neighborhoods. And so that's actually just a really intricate web of like both programs and policies like working together to you know ensure that one housing is affordable, attainable, but also two, it's it's um it's abiding by you know some sort of like standard for like you know um, you know emissions reduction and towards that target of like net zero. Um, so I think shifting a little bit to um, how transportation systems can function, I think a big thing that comes up when we talk about, you know, zoning reform and more inclusionary zoning is transit oriented development and this kind of shift toward, you know, walkable cities. And that's that was the focus of the report. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit on how public and private sectors um, particularly, you know, developers and these um, trans transit agencies and, um, you know, other other entities can work together to help create transportation systems that reduce reliance on cars and more broadly improve urban mobility, particularly um, not in a single occupancy vehicle. Yeah, so I, you didn't say it explicitly in, um, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the preliminary sort of questions. And so I just immediately, my brain went to, ah, yes, the TOD. Um, and so the, the variability in like the types of TOD policies um, is just really, it, it, it's, it's really broad. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, what that looks like on the ground in terms of the uh, zoning policies that you'll see, um, it can be things that are just as minute as like, uh, like uh, uh, what do you call it? Like like landscaping, like furniture, like uh, like providing bus shelters as part of a development, or it can be something as huge as like specifications for um, a street network as part of like a planned development. So um, it really runs the gamut. Um, but in terms of you know the end result, right? These 
these uh, transit-oriented development policies, uh, they can be sort of grouped together within the individual um, uh, articles of a zoning um, of a zoning code, um, or it could be sort of dispersed. Uh, you see that quite quite often, actually, with um, you know policies that are intended to uh, also enhance resilience. You know, funny enough. Um, you know, some of these streetscape or streetscape in general is like impervious and there's some really interesting tie-ins there. But um, oh, so uh, requirements like installation of uh, street trees, for example, um, for planned development or for new development in general, um, impact fees uh, or these sorts of these sorts of requirements can and very often are specified within um, you know uh, development regulations zoning codes. Um, pretty uh, within uh, uh, what do you call it? There's like an application requirements section that you that you'll pretty often see um, within most of these uh, most of these ordinances. And um, so I touched a little bit up about um, on like these landscaping, uh, these landscaping requirements, right? You need to plant shade trees. Here are the types of shade trees you could conceivably plant um, or uh, or or uh, uh, those requirements might actually be, uh, you know, uh, it depends on the jurisdiction, but those requirements might also be uh, uh, something that the uh, the locality takes on. But there's still some sort of um, some sort of a, 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 a mechanism inherent in the code that like makes it possible to arrive at that um, at the you know properly landscaped streetscape and like again contributing to the walkability. Um, you know, sidewalk widths. These are more things that are that can be specified um, within zoning codes. Um, so uh, I think like some some of the more comprehensive policies you'll happen across are for those planned unit developments because you're sort of starting from scratch. Um, the codes may have provisions that require integration with these existing systems. So a bus stop needs to be negotiated in tandem with the locality, right? So the developer needs to have a conversation about like, okay, what's the relative cost of extending this route? Where would the stop go? How do we how do we get this going? And that might not be explicitly within the code, but the code can certainly get the conversation started. Um, and then there's also the uh, specifications for like uh, for review so you can see or just this is just a general requirement that localities study the traffic impact of a prospective development um, on uh, on the community and the surrounding uh, surrounding street network so uh, specifications for considerations in that in that report as well as the requirement that the report be conducted is also something that you see pretty commonly within like development regulations zoning codes um whatever whatever it is the localities decided to call it um that definition is something that we've actually like grappled with at length <laughs> um during our discussions in the formulation of the report because there are so many ways that you can um uh there's so many ways that like the specifications that you see in zoning codes can sort of drift outward into the broader code of ordinances um, uh, in general. And this was something that I uh, tackled at length um, in my resilience review because you'd see some of the uh, some zone specific or like geographically geographically uh, oriented requirements on like or, or requirements for development uh, geared towards improving resilience like stormwater regulations. Um, just sort of 
uh, smattered about throughout the code of ordinances, but not specifically integrated into the zoning code. So there's like a real case to be argued for, you know, that information to be integrated into, um, uh, you know, a single section and maybe the zoning code, depending on the locality, is the place where it should be aggregated. Um, I promise this has something to do with transportation too. Um, so really often um, the uh, the way that uh, uh, so street net, street networks are really really closely tied to this. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, street networks are really closely tied to the whole resilience question because it determines whether or not you know the uh, you know critical infrastructure can be accessible with uh, during times of emergency. Um, and so you know there are um, there are requirements for localities um, in terms of the way that you know uh, this this the the um, the way that roads are constructed, the manner in which they're constructed, you know, where are the points of egress, uh, ingress, egress on on certain parcels. Um, but that's again something that's just sort of floating around out there, like within the code of ordinances, and not really like condensed into a single subsection. And you know, again, it's sort of a case by case uh, consideration on whether or not it should be aggregated. But um, it's it's just really interesting to see how the policies do exist, but they're just sort of everywhere. Yeah, totally. And it's, I work in transportation planning and it's really interesting to kind of hear um, that from, you know, the, the background of real estate development and hearing about, you know, I work on, you know, complete streets like planning and that kind of thing. Um, and to, to have it like aggregated into like a zoning code is a really interesting premise that, you know, I don't think I, I've really ever talked about. So thank you for sharing that. And I think a big part of the report also talks about resilience and sustainability in cities. Mm -hmm. And so pivoting again to um, kind of that side, which, you know, obviously goes along with with all of like they're all interconnected, but I was wondering if you could highlight some examples of current land use policies that cities are adopting or have adopted to address climate change threats. And I know that this might be, you know, hard to distill, but if that if you feel that they are effective or can be effective. Yeah. Um, one that I'm really excited about is in Arlington County, Virginia. They started doing this in 1999, but they've done continual updates, which I will say is key, keep updating things. Um, I heard recently from a BizNow conference, low-hanging fruit regrows. So even if it seems easy, you're gonna have to still do it. Um, and this is about density bonuses, again, coming from the real estate development side and often working more with real estate owners. There's a lot being thrown at them. They're building performance standards. They're, you know, federal regulations there's just always things that are being added on top so when you can give something back that maybe makes doing the right thing look that much better for lack of a better term that's really great and so in arlington county virginia they have a density bonus where if you reach a certain level of lead to i think it's lead gold at this point they'll give you um, a higher floor area ratio so you can build up and you can increase essentially your profit, but you're also promising to create um, a more energy efficient building. And a lot of folks at this point have minimum lead standards or other types of certifications as their standards anyway. So it's not that big of an ask. And one thing that I really like about that too, which connects back to the last question is that's building density. And I think 
the most sustainable thing you can do if you're able to is walk and probably not use transportation. And if you're creating these areas and incentivizing um, developers to create these areas that are dense, but also taking into consideration biophilia and other types of methods that um, add in nature and clean energy, it's a really nice mix. And so that one is pretty exciting to me. So also, um, so looking at things from like a uh, adaptation resilience sort of view, um, because um, so in real estate, we we when we consider like risk to assets, um, we we look at it from like a transition risk, which is sort of like a, like future policies, future uh, um, uh, like reporting requirements or uh, you know cost of mitigation. Um, which is what um, sort of what Ben is speaking to, right? The need to like reduce our emissions so that we are we are no longer contributing to this to the issue of uh, climate change. Um, and then on the other on the other side of things, there's the um, physical risk component. So transition risk and physical risk. Um, and the physical risk arm of this uh, of this issue is, you know, what I what I deal with the, with um, the whole climate resilience issue and the assessment of um, that. That type of risk to the existing assets, like when a storm hits, uh, how much is it going to cost you, um, and how and how much is it going to cost you to prepare for it as well? So, um, looking at that um, from a resilience standpoint, there's uh, a couple of things that are, I think, I guess, a bare uh, bare mention, right? Um, we and I can think and I can talk about these examples, like from like fire and from uh, water. So. Um, but I, but I first let's like sort of give you a higher level overview. So the types of interventions or reforms that we uh, explore in the report body are the comprehensive zoning reform overhauls. So like those comprehensive overhauls, meaning you take the code and you completely uh, re you you reassess its contents and find uh, find in 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 the case of resilience specifically, you're finding places uh, where. Uh, you know that there is a known risk and there are things that can and should be done in future development or, you know, with uh, major renovations um, that are not grandfathered in necessarily to uh, to address them. So then there's the by right zoning. And so that's, um, you, know, you know, again, for future development, but perhaps not a total overhaul, just sort of, um, you know, addressing addressing uh, risks associated with certain uses, um, maybe create a new district uh, to, to account for flooding, for example, like I think uh, Norfolk, Virginia is a great example of one of the one of those. Um, um, and similarly, there's uh, there's Summit County in Colorado that we that we covered uh, in the report body as well. I'll get into those in a second. Um, then there's the overlays. So you've got your base zoning, your by right zoning, and then you slap another zone on top of it with even more stringent requirements. So if you know that the that there's a neighborhood like that's at the wire, uh, wildfire or, um, urban interface, the woof, um, <laughs> that is uh, that is a place that might be a good uh, candidate for an overlay zone that has requirement like additional requirements for setbacks and what have you same goes for flooding um then there's the uh, floating zones which are sort of uh you know the whole planned unit development opportunities right where you work with in tandem with developers to um you know give them a little bit more flexibility in terms of what they end up doing on the site um 
but ultimately you're still hitting that that stormwater retention requirement for example you're still addressing the um you're still addressing the uh the defensible space around your structures um and then finally there's the incentive uh incentive based policies that uh, one of one of them uh, i think ben spoke to right you see very often these incentives mm -hmm. for um uh for green green building incentive programs uh so you get a little bit of an extra density for example if you uh if you go a certain route uh in terms of your uh you know you install a green roof for example or you um uh what do you call it you use uh, native plants or oh this is that's a <laughs> That's a little bit more on the stormwater retention side, um, but uh, these are these are all the types that we cover in the report body. So going back to uh, some of the specific examples, right? I mentioned Norfolk, Virginia. Um, so in uh, in Norfolk, they did a comprehensive zoning overhaul. Um, they made uh, I I have to be so careful not to use the word substantial improvement because I think that trigger triggers something in in the minds of planners, and that's it's not not quite that kind of substantial improvement. But um, they made it they made a, a a big improvement to their uh, to their zoning codes to accommodate um, some of the known risks due to flooding, and so they have these. Um, these uh, these specialized zones. Um, let's see. In addition to some incentives uh, on top of those zones that uh, that that uh, basically sort of mitigate uh, potential flood losses. And there are some great co-benefits to adopting policies like this. So for example, um, if you're familiar with the community rating system, um, you can actually improve uh, communities' flood insurance rates by having policies like this in place to, uh, to uh, you know, mitigate the, uh, the, the amount of like uh, claims filed due to like uh, from losses due to flooding. So it's um, just, just a really nice sort of um, uh, uh, approach that they've taken, and we actually interviewed um, the uh, the head of zoning for uh, the city in our uh, in our post report release webinar. So I really encourage people to check that out. Um, and then going back to uh, Summit County, so Summit County, I go from fire, uh, flood to fire. So Summit County actually um, passed a uh, passed a, a similar sort of like zone based. Uh, well, they're all zone based policies, but this policy is uh, is looking at the um, uh, at like wildfire hazard areas, and so the types of development that are um, that are allowed there are different in these in these particular type uh, parts of the of the county. So those uh, considerations include like. Uh, uh, some landscaping requirements. You've got uh, no outdoor storage in uh, in certain places. Um, there's uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, certain uses aren't permitted. So, for example, you can't store something that's explosive um, in a place that might potentially burn. Um, and all of this seems common sense, but it's it's really surprising how um, how things just sort of get built without regulation. And um, suddenly they're 
there are, uh, you know, maybe fires or, or flooding where you wouldn't anticipate. So just a little bit too much impervious areas. For example, if your neighbor decides to pave their entire yard, your yard is suddenly going to start flooding. And people don't really think about those impacts. And without regulations, you sort of start to see them really fast. So, um, you know, you asked me about the efficacy of these of these measures, and it's really just like a well, from a, from a look, from the perspective of a of a city, right? There's major liability here, right? The, uh, cities have and planners uh, as individuals have a responsibility to protect people's health, safety, and welfare, right? And um, you really don't want to find out whether or not it works, um, just as a preface, uh, from a resilience standpoint. Um, and these measures are, are more often than not uh, like engineering controls, like the impacts to to a lot um, in terms of like uh, permeable area. Uh, these are these are like modeled, um, and they're not at all arbitrary. Um, and so uh, you know, there's there's quite a bit of a. a uh, of like case law around, you know, um, people who felt as though their land was no longer um, uh, useful because of these policies, but the reality is, or or they or they felt that the that the localities passing these policies were going beyond their uh, beyond their purview um, in in in, uh, in through their adoption, but you know the reality is that you know without it, lives can be lost. Uh, in some instances. And so, you know, it's just really uh, a necessity that you know, these measures, given the known climate risks uh, that are posed, be, you know, integrated into, uh, into in, or rather not integrated, but codified. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's my very long-winded response to your question. Thank you very much. Um, a couple things. One, thank you for the overview kind of of these different like layers of zoning i remember like in grad school being so confused when there was you know the general zoning code but then there's an overlay and there's a special zone and it just all seemed like so overwhelming so hearing that kind of breakdown was very helpful and um also i did environmental studies in undergrad and so my kind of passion for pursuing planning was kind of this I am in transportation, but I'm very interested in the intersections of transportation issues and like environmental resilience and sustainability. And so um, thank you for kind of diving into that um, selfishly. That was very interesting to me. And I hope that, uh, you know, everyone finds that to be really insightful. Um, and I think, you know, talking about resilience and um, sustainability, um, green space in cities is a really big topic in that area. And so it would be great to talk a little bit about how planners can ensure that parks and green spaces can reflect the cultural diversity and preferences of a community. And if you have um, some examples of culturally tailored parks, that would be awesome to talk about as well. I don't have off the top of my head an example of a culturally tailored park, but I will say one thing that's really cool in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a great town, that they have a sustainable overlay district that requires uh, for every 30 square feet of a dwelling, um, yes, every 30 square feet of a dwelling should have 300 square feet outside 
to that dwelling. And so just along with the building, encouraging green space as well, that's actually a issue we're having in the town that I'm on a planning board in is how much green space do we need to quantify and how much is healthy for folks. And so I think having those charrettes, going back to that, having those engagements folks want to see in their public spaces and making them accessible to everyone in the community, um, not having, you know, the furniture that is sometimes word. Can you think of the word for me? The furniture outside that sometimes is doesn't allow people to be comfortable. The anti-homelessness uh, measures that they that they install on. Are are you? That's what I'm referring to, and there's, I guess, a word that kind of hides. Like, but like hostel. hostel? Sure. Thank you. Um, I community are in. It's really important people not to have that type of furniture because it, you know, it represents a certain tone towards an unwelcomeness. And I think it's really important to be in tune with the voices that will be using the parks. So uh, recently we um, we released a couple of really uh, nice uh, nuggets of knowledge. Um, so one of them was the 10 principles of equitable access to parks report. And um, in that report, we talk a bit about um, some of the some of the uh, you know additional benefits that come with you know installation of green space and you know some of the um, social benefits as well, um, well social and health benefits as well. So um, I'm just going to go through this uh, really great list that um, one of our co-authors on the report, um, Matt Norris, provided. So. Um, you know, that includes activating parks and, um, you know, offering programming that reflects and respects diversity and diverse input uh, interests of the uh, community residents. And it takes into account the needs and preferences of different generations and different cultures, um, ensuring features are program uh, and programming is flexible and the space is easily adaptable for a lot of different uses over time. So, uh, you're not you're not stuck with just a playground. It's it's um, maybe at some gathering place for the community as well. Maybe a community garden at some point, but it's not just set in stone. Um, and then ensuring that uh, parks are physically accessible to people with different abilities. Right, that universal design um, principle. Um, which should be a priority, and um, it's something that should be a priority uh, not only uh, during the design phase, but also like throughout the maintenance of the park itself. Um, panning quickly because these are some of these are some of the key points that were raised in that ten principles of equitable access, access to parks report. We also released a really nifty report um, from one of my colleagues, um, Victoria Ostreich, uh, uh, who uh, it's called uh, Parks That Protect. Um, and so these are sort of a waterfront parks, so like a collection of case studies, and um, you know, just sort of looking at some um, some of the parks around the around the world that uh, you know serve a dual purpose, um, and not just um, not just from a uh, you know community galvanization standpoint, you know, building up that really critical social infrastructure. 
um, but also from a resilience standpoint. So they serve a dual benefit. They provide retention area. They um, they may filter water. They uh, and it all and or they meet the needs of the community from a resilience standpoint in some other uh, really critical way. So um, those are two reports that I'd like to draw attention to. We also recently had a um, a. Uh, a community playground that was featured in, um, this is Canadian, um, but it was featured in our, uh, during our, one of our coastal, um, one of our coastal forums. And um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but I do want to um, make sure that gets shared as well, because I thought it was just such a creative design approach to the design. Um, it's another example of like, of like a, a, a community space that was, you know, designed for um, uh, for the community specifically, but it also did a great job of incorporating like natural uh, features of the environment into the design itself, in like in ways that like inspired um, just play and engagement. Um, and it's something that you don't see very often. Oftentimes, you see a lot of um, just plastic material that's uh, that that's. Uh, that serves as like uh, you know play uh, uh, play equipment, but uh, or you know like metal <laughs> metal rods protruding from the ground. But in this instance, it was all just very um, it was all very green. I if, <laughs> if I remember correctly. So I'll I'll pass along the details for that um, afterwards so that you know people can peruse it. I thought it was very uh, creative as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was a really amazing conversation. And I feel like we really ran the gamut of, you know, housing, transportation, climate change. So um, I appreciate um, all of the thought that went into, you know, the answers to these questions. They're very big questions. Um, and to our listeners, I want to definitely make sure that um, this report is you know, you're reading this report, looking more into it, we will provide links um, to the other kind of resources that um, Lee alluded to. And um, yeah, I think it would be great if folks wanted to get involved in ULI as well. It is a great networking um, platform. It's an international group and there are a lot of members. So definitely, I don't know if either of you have like a pitch for why people should get involved in ULI. Um, kind of as maybe students or people young in their careers. I know that that I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but if you have that. Yeah, of course. Um, so when I, I'm from South Florida, uh, like Southeast Florida, Miami specifically. Um, and I grew up in a, in a city called the city of North Miami. Um, and for the longest time, you know, I've been, I've been sort of out of school or like back in or, or, uh, you know, boarded up at home because, you know, there's hurricanes, there's flooding, there's all sorts of crazy climate impacts. And so when I went off to college, I realized that my calling was to study sustainable development. And when I came home, I went back to work for the city of North Miami and I got involved in the Arch Creek Basin's um, technical assistance panel um, that's uh, facilitated by the Urban Land Institute. Um, let me tell you, during that panel, I learned so much about what was going on in my community. I'd seen it, I'd lived it, but I didn't, I'd never seen like the numbers and the reality of, you know, just of the sheer impact to, 
to, to the place that I grew up in and always thought they would be the way that it always had been. Um, and since and that's what inspired me to you know eventually join the organization. But just engagement in those technical assistance panels, engagement with the local district councils, um, and just getting involved wherever I could. You know, through uh, you know university connections is one opportunity that's now available. Um, our young leaders group is another great opportunity to get involved. Um, I just I just think it's such a great place to you know source like decades or maybe even approaching a century at this point worth of knowledge um, and also you know gaining some really good connections both um, from the planning uh, from the planning community from the planning profession but also uh, and also from the real estate profession writ large um, so I just I always appreciate a diversity of perspectives um, and I like good reads and so you know ULI has always been a place that I've um, that I've gone to for you know critical information about you know what I'm passionate about which is climate resilience sustainable development um, so Ben, did you have anything you wanted to you wanted to say about uh, uh, potential yeah. opportunities? Yeah, I I think folks should belong to organizations that they identify with their values, um, and that is certainly ULI for me. I really appreciate our mission priorities of decarbonization, increasing housing attainability, educating the next generation of diverse leaders. I think it's really important just to be a part of those groups where you're not only learning, but you're contributing. And I think a lot of people feel that way about ULI. So if you identify with any of those things, as we mentioned, there's a lot of different ways um, to get involved. And you also can grow with your involvement. You don't have to always be there 24 <laughs> seven, or you can be. And I think that's a really great part of it too. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for Sitting down and having this conversation, I got a lot out of it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs>